Welcome to Palliative Perspective, a podcast produced by the Hospice and Palliative Nurses Association. Each episode will explore important topics from the field of hospice and palliative care to preserve our history, explore current challenges, find inspiration from our patients, create connections within our field, and peek into the research that shapes our future. Whether you're a seasoned nurse, a nursing student, or simply interested in the field of hospice and palliative care, we're glad you're here. Let's get started. Hi folks, welcome to Palliative Perspective. I'm your host, Erin Holder. Today we have a guest who has been instrumental in developing hospice into what it is today, and I am very grateful that she has been willing to come on the show and share her experiences with all of us. So a big welcome to Pat Berry. Hello there. Thank you for inviting me, Erin. I really appreciate this opportunity. Of course. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, so, Pat, I was wondering if you'd be able to tell us a little bit about yourself and what your career has looked like. Yeah, I've been a nurse actually since 1973. My first job out of undergraduate school was on an adult hematology and oncology unit at the University of Minnesota. Um, I was a naive new grad, as we all are, at that stage of our career. And I was fortunate enough to be mentored by my nurse manager, Kay Carlson, and a uh, and a fellow staff nurse, Kitty Smith. Um, and Kitty, by the way, left uh, after a couple of years and founded the first hospice program in, in, in Minneapolis, St. Paul area. Um, these women took me under, the, under their wings, so to speak, and really taught me about caring about people that we that we cared for. I was also a primary nurse for several patients, uh, which meant when they were admitted, I um, I would be assigned to care for them. Each of those each of those patients uh, showed me what they needed, um, including their disease as their disease worsened and as they reached the end of their life. Um, they really took me by the hand and showed and taught me a lot. Uh, and I will never forget them. And I so appreciate that opportunity. So that experience, my first job, is why I chose this field. I think that's such a beautiful journey. And I think that for the most part, hospice ends up choosing us ultimately. Um, so how have you seen hospice evolve over the years? Well, well, it's been it's been actually um, um I've been able to bear witness to the hospice hospice field being uh, um, that basically birthed or born, I guess is what you say. and uh, and it has been interesting to me to witness the growth from basically doing things one way because either we didn't know any better or we'd always done it a certain way to a growing knowledge and, and evidence base. Um, hospice and more recently, palliative care has become more widely available and accept, um, accepted. Um, certainly, not, certainly not universally, and there is still a great um, um, deal of work to be done. And as I, but as I look around at my colleagues and the young people coming into the field, I feel energized and confident that the field is in really good hands. There is there is plenty of work for everybody. And uh, um, I think it's exciting the way the field has grown and continues to grow. 
It really is so exciting to see the growth in this field. I think it's so important and we are so lucky to have people like you that really paved that way for us. So um, I, I think that everyone has got to be curious about how you're involved in the uh, evolution of hospice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was involved at the very beginning, but before I go on, I want to emphasize that like many people, I've never done this work all by myself. It has been done in collaboration with people. And even though people may think um, may think that I have paved the way, uh, that way was paved with a whole group of people that were interested and passionate in it. So, uh, so I was involved in the really early, early evolution of hospice, and it's kind of a kind of, kind of a kind of I guess an example of how throughout my career I was in the right place at the right time, um, and um, and also had a lot of dumb luck frankly. Um, but anyway, when I was in my master's program, uh, I was actually fortunate enough to be invited to join a group in, in 1977 that now that founded Hospice of Salt Lake. I served as a volunteer nurse and have never looked back, actually. And, um, and since then, I, I was involved at the, um, at the state level in Utah, um, and, and then actually the national level. And some of the other highlights that I was um, actually invited to be involved in um, and that I uh, that I observed. The Medicare hospice benefit in 1982, um, scope and standards of hospice nursing practice, the hospice and then palliative care nurse certification. I served as a surveyor for the Joint Commission um, for hospice programs. I was invited to be part of the LNEC faculty and have, and have had, um, I've had the privilege of having chapters in nursing textbooks, and 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 as, and as the field has has grown, I've also, um, been a, I've also witnessed uh, the growth of palliative care broadly defined. I think that you've been such a gift to the hospice world. Thank you for sharing. Um, what are you specifically most proud of accomplishing? This is a hard one because as I mentioned a moment ago, um, I never did anything by myself. And my, I frankly do my best work by thinking out loud with people. And, and, I, um, and early on in my career, I decided that I would never um, or rarely um, want to have never I think is a better way that that I never really cared who got credit for stuff as long as what what um you know what we did was good work um perhaps the thing I'm most proud of is that I hung in there and was able to savor the little successes with others um I've always been able to maintain good good working relationships with colleagues mentors and those kinds of things. I also am proud of the fact that once again, right place, right time, dumb luck, that I had wonderful mentors and I am proud that I listened to them. A lot of people don't. Um, and I am very proud that I have incorporated the advice of those people um, wholeheartedly. You are always so humble, so it doesn't at all surprise me that you continue to lift up and appreciate those around you. 
I think that as more nurses start to join this field, whether it be new nurses or experienced nurses drawn to hospice, the key to longevity can be advice from people who have shaped the field, much like you were saying about your mentors. Uh, so what are the top 10 things that you've learned working in hospice? Well, actually, I have done a lot of thinking about this, Erin, and and it's been fun to uh, actually put this into words and into um um, and into thoughts. So my first my first lesson um, that I've learned is that you never burn a bridge. Um, even though you may disagree with somebody or you may um, you know uh, have a conflict with somebody, you never ever burn that bridge. Uh, the field is still pretty small. And certainly you that can come back um, to haunt you in the future. And so it's so it's really important to keep keep up good relationships with people, be them um, mentors, students, colleagues, because you never know when you might have the chance to work with people again or, um, maybe the burning of the bridge situation was a bad day for you or a bad day for them. So, um, the other thing that I have learned, uh, through my, through my own experience, actually, um, not, uh, not necessarily with hospice, but, uh, but with the care of my family members and, uh, so on is that nursing, nursing assistants, hospice aides make the world go round. And in a in a traditional hospice program, for example, the nursing assistant is the person who sees that patient and that family more than the nurse, than the social worker, than the chaplain, and so on. Um, and if you don't have a good nursing assistant, or if you don't have a have a good nursing assistant staff who feel your support and and confidence in them. Um, really, the hospice program can't function very well. I, um, if I may share a quick story, when, when, um, when I lived in Madison, Wisconsin, I worked, worked with the hospice program. I did a lot of on-call because I was in graduate school and, and all of that. And, and on over the Christmas time, uh, I was asked to take um, take patients of one of our wonderful nursing assistants who just did fabulous things. And so I went out to bathe this patient and um, and all of that. And and I asked her when, <laughs> when I was done, how things were. And uh, she said to me, well, Pat, you did a really nice job, but you're no Diane. And I, and I, I took that to be a compliment, actually, and uh, but this is a woman who did who did nails, who who did hair, who tossed the pajamas in the shower during um, during the Wisconsin winter, so people would be um, would be warm after their bath. Anyway, Diane indeed in that program made the world go round. The third thing, or the um, yeah, the third thing is is there's no such thing as a normal family. And I've also thought a lot about this is that we talk about the patient and family as if family is singular. And everybody who you meet, I think, um, want to present themselves as a normal family. And uh, June Ward Cleaver and Wally and the Beaver or whatever family you want to 
compare, um, you know, kind of the ideal to never really existed. Uh, those families are, are frankly socially constructed. So for pure entertainment value, but, but, but every family has their issues and sometimes we won't know what they are, but I think to approach people as if, um, as if they're normal, um, or functional or whatever, making all these assumptions about, about how the family should be or, um, or, um, or could be, I think is really dangerous. Um, when I, um, when I think about hospice and palliative care, I think about opening a very large and permissive space so people can be who they are and um, not meet expectations of what we think they should be. And, um, and I, you know, and I think we need to keep in mind that family is not a singular um, thing. Family is often multiple people. They may be at a distance. They may be close by. And to really ask people um, what they need, um, how they find this difficult, and to really listen intently when people tell us the truth about that. Uh, I think that's, um, I think that's really important. Um, the fourth thing is that, uh, is that words are so powerful and often mean something different to other people. So I, I can give you a couple of examples. One is the is a building on um, my last comment about normal family is that the term loved one actually drives me um, crazy. People know this about me. And, um, and when you approach a family and say, this must be very hard to have your loved one um, being in bed or having having all these issues or whatever, we actually close that space, that permissive space that we try to make large um, down really, really small. So we can't assume, I think, that everybody loves each other, even though I think that we fall into that. Um, loved one is really shorthand for close other or for family. Um, defined broadly. And to use that term, I think, is making the assumption about relationships with people and also making the assumption about how much that person is willing and able to provide for care and support. Um, so I actually did a study with a colleague of mine from, um, from Oregon Health and Science University uh, um, on this very topic, because this always really troubled me. And we ended up getting funding and we did a study where we recruited people, uh, children who had been um, neglected or maltreated by a parent and then found their way for whatever reason um, through expectation or they were the only person or for whatever reason they found themselves they found themselves uh, actually providing end-of-life care for that parent and what we found from that study there's a lot of things that we learned these people mainly women were very very generous with their perspectives is that we never really asked people 
about about um, their relationships with their parents. And um, so anyway, I think it's important for us to be careful with words. That's probably my favorite. The others are things like expired, um, death rattle. I would hope that we could remove totally from the lexicon of palliative care and, uh, and things like um, passed on or um, he's gone, things that really don't, um, don't, don't really convey the real meaning of what we're trying to say. Um, and um, words, certainly if people use words like death rattle, like, uh, like loved one or whatever, we can certainly mimic those, you know, and, um, but, but I think it's important for us to be very, very, um, very careful with our use of language. <clears throat> so um, the other, my fifth one, I think I'm on five here. Uh, thank your mentors. And I have actually uh, talked about this top 10 things in the past. And I have a slide up where I put pictures of all my mentors. And for those of us that have been mentored by people, uh, I think it's important for us to reach out and to thank them. And maybe some of those people don't know they were a mentor to us. Maybe some of them uh, don't realize the impact that they've had on us. Um, in my case, it maybe was a couple of situations that really made me think in a certain way or a certain different way. The same with colleagues too, I think, that that to really um, be able to say to a mentor or a colleague, you know, you really changed how I thought about this or how I felt about this. Um, even, you know what, frankly, even with students, um, I, I've taught a lot of graduate students and a lot of doctoral students and to you know, sometimes, oftentimes, uh, students will come in thinking about things a different way and uh, and will help you think about things a different way. Uh, I had a colleague who did who did research in nursing homes, and she framed nursing homes in a very positive way, which was unique, I think, among people that did that did similar work. My my next one is to is to of the things I've learned is that it's important to lift others up with you, kind of lift while you climb, um, pull people with you, and then have the wisdom to step out of the way. Um, and there, those of us that have been in the field for a while, we um, we actually um, we actually. Um, have the obligation, I think, to to nurture people, to raise people up, to um, to give people opportunities, to let go of an idea that you have that you know that you really aren't um, going to be able to really take to the next level for whatever reason. Maybe you don't have the right connections. Maybe there's other things going on, and so on. But I think it's. But I think the way the field, and I've seen this work, the way the field advances is when people put their ego aside 
and um, and can um, say, hey, you take this project. Let me be your cheerleader. Let me be your support, and then have the have the wisdom to step out of the way to let people um, pass you up and then celebrate with them. Um, having taught students, that's easy, but I think that, um, you know, to do that because you're proud of what they do. But I think that having colleagues, um, having um, that, that, uh, that work on something that maybe was your idea, maybe not, um, to really help them um, take it to the next level. I think that's incredibly important. So um, the, the other thing I've learned, which which um, which I think is important, is uh, that people, um, patients or people can be can be decisional yet not legally competent. That decision making capacity and legal competency are really two different things, and that um, people can um, can say that they want a certain thing or not, like go back to the hospital, uh, that they want to um, um, forego a treatment or whatever, and not be legally competent um, to, to actually make their own decisions about higher level things. Um, and of course, you have to be careful with this. I, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be, but I, but I am pretty amazed at how um, people can still know what they want and not and uh, not be legally um, competent. And there are guidelines in the literature about how you determine decision making capacity. And um, and uh, um, um, I would urge you to look those up because it's helpful, I think, for us to not have to go after the legal definition of, of um, competence. The other thing that kind of kind of piggybacks on this is that the advanced directive um, is only 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 comes into effect when the person um, is not decisional. And so uh, somebody just can't pull out an advanced directive and say, well, mom doesn't want this or mom doesn't want that um, without us determining that um, that person's decision making ability. So um, the, I think the, the uh, um, I think it's the eighth thing or whatever, <laughs> close or, you know, the last last three here, um, one of the last three is that, that there's plenty of work for everyone. Um, and I think that um, this kind of gets at the step out of the way, uh, lift as you climb, um, getting people to, um, to realize that just because it's not your idea, it doesn't matter. Um, there's always a different way of looking at something. Um, and, be and believe me, there is, there is plenty of work that we still need to do. Uh, the field has has actually evolved from we've always done it this way, as I mentioned earlier, to really looking at at an evidence base, not only not only quantitative research, but also qualitative research um, to really learn from from um, people's perspective and so on. But there is so much work and there's plenty of work for all of us. Um, 
the the ninth thing is it's never wrong to ask for help uh, a curbside consultation or some think out loud time with a colleague and this is where i personally have always done my best work is in a group uh, interdisciplinary groups are are actually the funnest for me but to to be able to call somebody and say hey you know i saw this or i'm thinking about this or um, what do you think about this circumstance? And uh, asking for that quick curbside with a physician colleague, a social worker, if you suspect um, uh, that you might need some help, you know, with another, you know, area, spiritual care, physical occupational therapy, to not actually um, hesitate to call on your colleagues. Um, and it's amazing how, for me anyway, you you get talking, it kind of primes the pump, so to speak, with both of us, and you end up uh, having a lot of really good ideas um, and maybe a different way of looking at something um, and often a way that you hadn't thought about. Um, my last thing I think is the most important when you look at the lessons uh, that I've learned working in the field of hospice and palliative care um, is that this work is incredibly important. Um, as we, the royal we here, with rare exception, only have one chance to get it right. Unlike, unlike, uh, unlike other situations, um, people um, people don't don't die twice. <laughs> um, once again, with rare exceptions, we can't go back and say, gosh, I wish you would have done this a little differently. Um, but we really need to be on our A game when we're dealing with people um, who are facing serious illness, who have symptom issues, and who who are reaching uh, and are um, and are at the end of their life. Um, and this is important not only to the care of the people, the patients that we care for, but also the family members that we help through this process. We may have done this several times as a professional, but uh, usually and often, uh, um, if not almost always, this is the first um, time that a family member has ever gone through this. And so to uh, spend that time to explain to normalize, to say, this is what we expect. This is what we can do about it. Um, and, um, and you know, to really be careful about um, um, doing the very best we can as a field for that person, because we only have one chance to get this right. And then the opportunity is then gone. Wow, I thank you so much for sharing all of these valuable lessons. Hospice is a community and it's so impactful to hear your truths, truths that I hope that we can all take to heart. So thank you so much for joining us today, Pat, and thank you for all the work that you've done to help make hospice what it is today. My pleasure, Erin. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you found our discussion informative and engaging. Remember, the conversation doesn't end here. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support what we do, be sure to leave us a review and subscribe for future episodes. This helps us to continue to build our audience of listeners and dive deeper into the world of hospice and palliative nursing to bring you more insightful interviews. 
have an idea for a future episode, send us an email at info at hbna.org. For more resources on hospice and palliative nursing, be sure to visit us at www.hbna.org.